Welcome to this bonus episode of Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My co-host is Jim DeRigatis. And if you want to be the first to hear our bonus podcast, become a Sound Opinions member on Patreon, like Scott Moore. Thanks for your support, Scott. Yay! Yes, absolutely. Jim, this week you've got an interview for us, right? Who did you talk to? Well, I talked to my old friend from New York, Tim Somer. I was uh, a huge fan of his radio show on WNYU, Noise, the show, and uh, was a huge fan of his big art rock, well, it was a, a small combo, uh, Hugo Largo, it made a big impact on me. Then he joined <laughs> Atlantic Records and signed Hootie and the Blowfish, and we had some history there, Hootie and me and Tim. You know, Tim having this inside view of the music industry during a fascinating time, really the last time the music industry was the industry, he was unfailingly honest. He put all of the stories uh, about the inner workings of Atlantic Records and of Hootie in his book, Only Want to Be With You. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not interested in Hootie, stay tuned, because the talk with Tim, I think, was fascinating. That's going to be next. That sounds like a fascinating interview, Jim, in a minute on Sound Opinions. All right, I am so excited to reconnect with my old friend, Tim Somer, with this new book, Only Want to Be With You, the inside story of Hootie and the Blowfish. You did interview me. We, we've not been completely out of connection for very long. Yet. That is correct, yes. Um, but it is, it is quite an accomplishment. Um, because it is, uh, well, let me, let me quote where you start, uh, paraphrasing uh, Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the end of a time. Sometimes it feels like it didn't happen at all. Meaning, really, the last gasp of the old school major label music industry. And you were part of it as an A&R man. Fancy lingo for talent scout. That is exactly true. And when I say the end of times, I don't just mean that it was the last gasp of the major label industry, the pre-streaming industry, which of course was true. Mm -hmm. And I've heard Cracked Review, Hootie and the Blowfish's debut album, uh, which has sold, I think, 23 or 24 million copies. Mm. I've heard it referred to as the last blockbuster of the pre-streaming era. I don't know if that's actually right. But if it's not, it's one of the last blockbusters. But And I think this is where it relates more to you and I, Jim, and our backgrounds. It was also the end of the time in the sense that this was a band who got together like all of the bands that we've always known and loved and didn't love and were just friends with. This was a band that fell in love with alternative music and college radio and began playing songs in their dorm rooms and got together the way, well, like all the bands that we grew up with and came of age with, got together with. Now, yeah, I don't know. The bands know we that, were in. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Jamming Econo, putting it all in the back of the van. And I don't know if that's exactly a lost art, but something that comes up again and again in the book is that Hootie and the Blowfish, when I met them in 1993, and of course, by the time I met them in the summer of 1993, they had already been together eight years. Yeah. Longer than a lot of bands stay together. So here was a band that, you know, were already eight years old on the day I met them. Um, and something I say in the book over and over, and probably more than any one reason, the reason I signed Hootie and the Blowfish to Atlantic 
was because they felt familiar to me. They instantly felt like friends because mm -hmm. of the people you and I, and I mean specifically you and I, but yeah. I also know that listening out there, there are a lot of other yous and eyes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and Michael Azarod's This Band Could Be exactly. Your Life. We both That's know exactly when right. we're friends with Michael, that whole milieu of the 80s. Right, um, it was the mixtape generation. Yeah. And it was the Akano, you know, it was the yeah. tour Akano yeah. generation. And it was, it was, they instantly felt familiar because they were people who knew who Peter Hall's Apple were. They were people yeah. who knew who Kimberly Rue were. They were people who knew who uh, Lucinda Williams was or Jim yeah. Lauderdale was. Well, and or... most importantly, they knew the REM discography inside out and upside down. That's exactly right. As late that was as their big guiding star. As late as 1990, Hootie and the Blowfish were sometimes playing sets with 12 REM songs <laughs> yeah. in them. And yeah. something that comes up in the book is when their second drummer... Jim Sonnefeld joins the band in uh, late 1989. One of his requirements for joining the band is that they stop playing so many R.E.M. covers and start, <laughs> start playing some original music. But this is the reason they felt exactly, Jim, they felt exactly like the people that you and I had hung around with at Maxwell's. Maxwell's, yeah. In the, in the 1980s. They really did. They instantly felt familiar. And honestly, I'm not sure... And this is another thing I instantly sensed. I'm not sure I ever met a bigger REM fan on the planet than Darius Rucker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. One thing at a time, because we sure. could go on forever. Um, I signed Hooting the Blowfish to Atlantic Records. I'm disappointed, Tim, in very little in this book, because it is a fascinating read, especially the honesty with which you talk about the inside machinations of uh, of that level of uh, superstar making recording industry okay but we get a mere one paragraph on the story of tim somer and how he comes to be the uh an r man at atlantic now you graduated from nyu what year i didn't actually graduate from oh NYU. you didn't okay I, i wasn't doing exceptionally well i'd been distracted uh, by my journalism career, which was going great guns. You were writing for Trouser Press. The yeah, I was writing for Trouser Press, Robbins. The Daily News. Uh, I was the New York correspondent for Sounds, which was one of the three, at mm. the time, three British week music weeklies. Um, I was writing very regularly for The Village Voice. Uh, so I was very distracted by my journalism career the entire time I was at NYU. Okay. Having said that, um, the real impetus to leaving NYU was uh, Glenn Branca Ensemble. It was mm -hmm. Glenn Branca gave me a call and said, uh, come down and audition for the ensemble. And Glenn said, uh, you're in, let's go on tour. And uh, I'm happy to say that I think the recommendation to join the, to join the Glenn, my reference to Glenn Branca was from Thurston Moore, who mm -hmm. was a friend of ours at the time. And I say ours, saying he was a friend of yours too at the time. Um, so when Glenn Branca said, hey, let's go on the road, I did two things. I left NYU and I essentially gave up my journalism career, which was not really activated again till about 2013. Yeah. 
But well, that, doesn't, okay, so quite we, bring, you that know, doesn't quite answer the question. Of how no, 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 that's fine. I graduated NYU person. in 86, and I first heard the no, name Tim Somer listening to WNYU, the college radio station, mm. where you hosted Noise the Show. And you played the hardest of hardcore punk. And you delivered the uh, back cells and front cells in the spirit of the hardcore punk vocalists. That's exactly. Can you, can, can you do it? Can you do a noise of the show back sell for me? Not at this time in the morning now. Oh my God. That was Blood Flag. That was Big Boys. That was Breaking yeah. Youth. That was that last to front. to the year and noise the show. Countdown to the best hardcore in 1981. I'm Timmy Sommer on WNYU FM. We play the best hardcore, new and old, released, unreleased, anything you want to hear as long as it's fast and loud and punk and now and I every Wednesday. I will tell you though, Nick, that voice that was not planned the first time <laughs> the first time i did the show i sold the show to wmyu i had done some i'd been in 1980 and 1981 i was friends with uh, all of the myu wmyu uh, djs and these were people who later became fairly significant music industry movers and shakers like sal lucurdo and yeah. evan davies and uh Naomi Riegelson, these were Naomi people who was were a, a queen. Yeah, yeah, who were profoundly influential in my life. And I was occasionally doing replacement shifts at NYU, and I sold them the idea. I was becoming very engaged in this hardcore punk music that was coming out of LA and a little bit out of New York. And I was very into first and second generation English punk rock. And I thought, well, let's do a show devoted to this. And the first time I did it, that voice. That, hey, this is Timmy Sommer, and this is blah blah. I got you know I can't you know and here's Timmy Sommer, and here's a new single from the Exploited. That was when that came, that just came out. It wasn't planned, yeah. Yeah. and that's maybe why I find it so hard to reproduce. Um, now, by 1982, and the you know hardcore punk, which I thought was a very promising, re you know re-energizing and creative return, you know, return to the energy of original punk. Hardcore punk by mid-1982, late-1982, had been, for all intents and purposes, reduced to a lot of people slam dancing. It had become about the yeah. audience's aggression and not yeah. the musical creativity on stage. And a disturbing amount of political, reactionary, distasteful stuff. That's exactly right. And uh, I think by... 1982, I was becoming very, very disillusioned with that whole scene because I would go, any band that tried doing anything progressive, uh, like Bad Religion did on their second yeah. their second yeah. since disowned album, yeah. like TSOL was doing. Um, Coloring outside the lines, you yeah. were excommunicated. Was It was excommunicated. Yeah. And again, you went to the shows and people weren't paying any attention to what was going on on stage. And uh, not to mention as you alluded to all sort of the, the zig hailing yeah, yeah, that was right. going on. Not all of it, but there was that element, and it was disturbing and at the CBGB hardcore matinee Saturday that's right. afternoon. <laughs> and as you recall, precisely at that time, and we're talking early, mid-1982, precisely at that time, there were a bunch of bands on the Lower East Side who were using sort of the some of the techniques and energy of hardcore punk rock. Yeah. And applying them to a more free-form sort of Glenn Branca-influenced and Krautrock-influenced right. uh, art rock. You know, and these were bands like The Swans and Sonic Youth. 
mm-hmm. and Ut, uh, who are yeah. one of my favorites and still are, yeah. and Live Skull and Rat at Rat R. So I find I found myself transforming my uh, allegiances yeah. from hardcore punk to that art rock scene. Well, okay, okay. all right. So I'm getting ahead show, of us, a I'm moment sorry. in time. No, 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 no. And and it made an impression on me because you know the goal as a Lester Bangsian, was to write with the energy and the vernacular of the music. Exactly. doing that on the radio. I see you play with Glenn Branca. Uh, I become, when you form uh, Hugo Largo, a very uh, wonderful art rock uh, ensemble, I would say. And I know you. I'm introduced to you at shows as, you know, like the biggest uh, Hawkwind fan, right? (laughs) You even hop on stage uh, a couple of times with my band, The Love Pushers, for Jonathan Richmond covers. And you, Tim, you, Tim Somer, gave me my favorite compliment ever as a drummer. You said, you play like the guy in Noi. I love that. <laughs> right? All right, so we are we are firmly in the underground, right? Right. We're even no, we're, we're sort of on the left the left wing of the Feelies REM thing. Yeah, we're on the left. Yes, yes. That's yes. correct. Which is so, which now is the uh, now is the space occupied I think almost solely by Colin Newman. So there you go. Oh, God bless him. He God keeps going. Him. All right, but my question was how you go from that to uh, I know there's there's a, a detour to uh, VH1 and, and MTV, but how you go from that to major label A&R guy? In the early 90s and the late 1980s and the early 90s, I had become friends with Danny Goldberg, mm-hmm. who was a legendary music industry figure um, who, you know, had played enormous roles in the careers of Bonnie Raitt and then Nirvana and Sonic yeah. Youth and... Swan Song Records and on and on and on and yep. the No Nukes uh, concert and movie, really yeah. classic L.A. music industry guy. Yeah, but on the same hand, and I don't want to give you and I too much credit, though I will. On the same hand, he was sort of the the intellectual literary background yeah. that I yeah. think you and I believe or hope that we possess. Yeah, um, Danny knew something about me. Danny knew. I, that I, again, I'm going to say very much like you, Jim, that I had a tendency of being very early on bands. Mm-hmm. That I had been an extremely early fan of Sonic Youth, an extremely early fan of R.E.M., that I had been the first American to interview you 2 mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in 1981. Sorry, in 1980. In... Uh, the autumn of 1980, um, that I had helped, I, I wouldn't say I helped bring the Beastie Boys together, but that I'd gotten them their first gigs. Yeah. Danny knew that I had a tendency of being very early on bands. Mm-hmm. And I think sometime when I was in Yugo Largo, he had said to me, probably in 1988 or so, he had said to me, you know, it is absolutely a true story, by the way. He had said to me, you know, you'd make a great A&R person. Now, when you're an avant-garde musician hanging out with Michael Stipe and Eno and David Bowie, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and someone says you'd make a great A&R person, you're very insulted. Mm. Um, it's not what you want to hear, but it's stuck in Except my there, head. There was a paycheck attached. There was a paycheck attached, yeah. which there was barely one attached to Yuka Largo. I can assure you right, that. Right, right, right. Though enough to live, though I will say enough to live in Hoboken in 1980, 1988. Yeah, but that was like, you know, anybody could live in Hoboken in 1988. Yes. College um, kids. And uh, so 
1992, Danny Goldberg went over to take over the West Coast office of Atlantic and in turn becoming one of the major players in the WIA system. Um, and Danny, apparently one of the first people he called to join him as an A&R person, maybe the only person he called at that time, was myself. And yeah. he said, come to Los Angeles and do A&R for me. Yeah. And yeah. for my first year, Jim, that meant learning the ropes, but also bringing people. I did bring people like uh, Beck and Stereolab into mm -hmm. that office. And, mm -hmm. and interestingly enough, in both those cases, in the cases of both Beck and Stereolab, I assessed that Atlantic, which was a very, very singles-driven label, would not be right for those artists. Yeah. But long story short, Danny did bring me in to help establish the alternative credibility of his West Coast office, because Atlantic, and this is all dealt with in the book, had missed the boat on uh, yes, the grunge That movie. alternative thing. <laughs> yeah, they had, in 1992, they were still signing Sunset yeah. Strip here. They had yeah. totally missed the boat on the... Well, uh, that's why I was at Rolling Stone. You know, exactly. John Leonard felt we had missed the boat on that uh, alternative thing. That, that, that SOB, Kurt Cobain, gets on my cover wearing a T-shirt saying corporate magazines still suck. Right. You know... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But uh, well, and Danny was always very forward thinking. Uh, not long after you arrived, uh, uh, he tapped a friend of mine I know uh, from Chicago, David Prince, to advise him on this electronica thing. Right. You know, at that moment where you have Moby and Aphex Twin and the Orb signing to major labels. You know, I mean, this is what you know major labels should do. They should think ahead. <laughs> and Electra had always done that. You referred to Wea earlier, Warner Brothers Electra Asylum. Uh, or Atlantic. Um, Atlantic, in many ways, was the least hip of That's the exactly Warner Brothers right, yeah. Electra. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay, so, you know, Stereolab, Beck, no surprise there. <laughs> Tim Somer digging them. Um, I mean, it was, uh, it was interesting. When I think of the bands I personally was looking at in 1992 and 1993, and the bands I actually took meetings with, Beck, Stereolab, Fu Manchu, mm. who I loved. I, I, but Stone again... Stoner Rock would blow up in a huge way, yeah. Um, well, huge for underground. Um, I But I assessed, I had the foresight to assess that these bands were not quite right for Atlantic. Mm. Um, and in many, some ways I regret that. But to tell you the truth, Beck, who I came very, very close to signing a deal with, um, Beck would have died in the vine at Atlantic Records. Absolutely. Because yeah. yeah. Atlantic, and this is in the book in depth, uh, Atlantic was very much about quick reactions and quick singles. Yeah. If you put out a record and it didn't react within four or six weeks, you were as good as dead at Atlantic Records. Yeah. yeah. No, and that's a fascinating, the, the insights into the industry, the mindset. Um, nobody in that world, including anybody else at Atlantic, wanted to sign this band that had made a strong reputation in what you call the Mid-South, right? Playing that touring circuit. I mean, living on the road, nonstop. Hootie and the Blowfish is a band for eight years <laughs> when you go to see them, and, you know, in, they had in been, their native element. And they had been largely invisible. I'm trying to think, yeah. and I'm going to ask you to fill in a name here. Circa 1992-93, who would have been, say, a big band that you would have seen at Mercury Lounge and said, in a room full of A&R people? 
Well, I don't, I don't think that was the comparison. I think Hootie, like Dave Matthews and like Spin Doctors, who were in New York, so they That's had correct. a slightly higher profile, right? But nobody uh, expected the Matthews band to blow up the way. No, they no, did. and that's what's a, that's a very interesting story because what I was what I was getting at was Hootie and the Blowfish, uh, and this is again, this is in the book. In 1992, I think it was, maybe it was 93, but 1992 made half a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, the hard way. The hard way. From by a playing, van. By playing or a, three and then or, finally a bus. <laughs> and I distinctly recall in uh, early 1994 having a conversation with my friend Bruce Floor at RCA. And here I am saying, hey, I signed this band nobody wanted called Hootie and the Blowfish. And Bruce said, I signed this band nobody wanted called Dave Matthews Band. Right. And I said, oh, that's funny. Right. They're friends with each other. Right. Um, right. Well, I love the story you tell in the book. Again, it's a must-read for you, the insights uh, of the industry and the music world. Um, you know, uh, Atlantic wants to give them an advance. Right? You uh, and you're, the bosses over you say, you know, you give them an advance, right? It advances a loan that you pay back, you know, every paperclip staple piece of paper used in a press release, right? Yeah. Nobody, nobody gets out from under that. And Rusty Harmon, key player here, the, the manager says, hey, we've got 800000 in the bank. We don't need to debate. Give us money to make the record, and we'll take the rest on the back end. That's exactly in- right. And <laughs> it's one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons, uh, and again, this is all in the book, that a standard deal, a standard record deal in 1993, I say in the book, and I think this is accurate, a standard record deal would have been about $250,000. Yeah. Now, if another label, if there was a bidding war, that went up fast, fast, yeah. to half a million, $750,000, a million, two million. And here comes Hootie and the Blowfish um, saying, give us enough money to make a record. And we yeah. say, okay, well, how about $35,000? Yeah. And they say yes. <laughs> sure. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. I really didn't. I, you know what? I just, you know... I just wanted to make a good record with these guys. And uh, the producer, Don Gaiman, seemed like a no-brainer to me because Don yeah, Gaiman... They wanted Don Dixon. They wanted R. Don e. Dixon. Worked with the DBs, um, yeah. Who I'm not sure... Who Don Dixon had credibility, yeah. had an extraordinary amount of credibility, especially in cool. their world. Yeah. Yeah. And for lack of a better way, I'll, put, I'll call that the proto-Americana edge of the rem world that's you true. know because that's uh, true you know um pre wilco but about to become wilco sunvolt that whole world yeah you know um the band and don gaiman had produced this was it was a no-brainer to me yeah he had produced john mellencamp he had produced mm-hmm. rem bingo mm-hmm. REM makes the, the Hootie Boys happy, uh, you know, at Mellencamp, right? Because you'd like to sell records and keep your job. You know, and so that that was an absolute yeah. no-brainer when you put those two together. And the band were like, okay, yeah, we want to work with Dixon, but if you think that's yeah. what's right with us. Yeah. We met with this guy, Don, Don Gaiman. He seems like a nice guy. Let's yeah. do this. Oh, and you make the point. They were uh, eight years on the road. This is a shot. They are not compromising but they are eager to to uh, uh make people happy here's yeah. our new partner tim here's our new partner exactly Atlantic. Right. we'll we'll play all right uh, you know nobody sees 
uh, Cracked Rear View coming and becoming Nobody. what it what it become eight and a half million records uh, at the time of release. Yeah, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I will say and this. it just kept growing. Time of release, you know, it's on the list with Dark Side of the Moon and Fleetwood Mac. Uh, you know, if there are so many variations, Tim, as you know, it was driving you crazy when you were writing this book. But but you know, somewhere in the top twelve best selling albums of all time. And I will say this, and I say this absolutely without exaggeration. Sometimes you say things and you think to yourself, you know what it's like, Jim. Sometimes you say things and you think to yourself, have I told this story so many times that at this point I'm just making it up? And yeah, then I yeah, remind yeah. myself, no, this is actually true. Is that, well, that, that's where you started the book. We, <laughs> Hard to believe it happened. Where we, The thing we kept on saying in the studio or when we went out to drink at night was, boy, if we could be as big as the Jayhawks. Because <laughs> yeah. we thought at that time the Jayhawks were playing, you know, and then that's all. Hootie were listening to a lot of that sort of stuff. Hootie were listening yeah. to the Jayhawks, yeah. Vic, uh, Victoria Williams. That that was there. Well, and Rick Rubin, you know, destroyed the Jayhawks by foisting a producer on them who made them fire their drummer. You know, yeah. I mean, I had written that story when I was living in Minneapolis. But it it, was... you know, Jayhawks, we all said, hey. If we can be as big as the Jayhawks, that right, would be goal. fantastic. Yeah, well, Only, like Kurt, Kurt and Chris wanted to be as big as the Melvins. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> only, only, I think, and I'm being very honest here, only Don Gaiman, I think, had mm. an idea that we might be on to something else. We yeah. really didn't know. Again, and this is a reference specifically to our generation. Yeah. Our generation, Jim... And this is what Hootie said over and over. Our generation was about getting to album two. Right, right. You sold a little more on album two. And we to do what we love to do. Right. You got yeah. to album two, then maybe you got to album three, and maybe, yeah. maybe on album four, like R.E.M. and the Talking Heads, you yeah. sold half a million records. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe you had those three albums to always be proud of. Yeah. All right, like the Del Fuegos. Exactly, okay, exactly. Band. I re- remember being at Del Fuego shows with you, yeah. right? Yeah. All right, all right. So album two is a story in and of itself. But what is fascinating is, uh, like, did you read that New York Times story about the woman who bought a $35 bust last week at a uh, uh, thrift shop, and it turns out to be an ancient Roman antiquity? Yes, I did. Okay, all right, that's what you did for Atlantic. You sign these guys for a bargain, thirty-five grand, and it becomes one of the best-selling albums. Do you know it's a story I like. You know it's a story I like to tell, and I I want to say this story without putting anybody else down. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the band I'm going to put down is a band that hardly anyone remembers, so that's that's a good thing. Um, at the time, the same release period, the first week of July, nineteen ninety-four. The same release period, Cracked Rear View was released. Another record was released by a lesser New York grunge band called mm. Surgery. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On yeah. Atlantic. Yeah, Atlantic which released, nobody remembers. Yeah. Atlantic released, uh, whose singer, unfortunately, passed not long after that. Yeah. Um, so Atlantic releases this band Surgery at exactly the same time. Surgery were considered enough of a priority to make a video before the album was released. Yeah, Hootie not and the so Blo- Hootie. Hootie and the <laughs> Blowfish were not. Hootie and the Blowfish yes. had to earn that video by, yes. by getting radio play. Um, but I think what you were going to get at next, which is terribly interesting, and 
As you know, Jim, from your own work, one of the interesting things about, and this was my first book, one of the right. interesting things about writing in long form is you discover things about yeah. things you thought you know all you knew all about. No, and because you, you want to dis- interview all the players, yeah. And you discover things that you did not know. Right. Um, one of the key th- moments in this book, I think, is what happens is Cracked Review sells, sells some more, and then sells some more. And then it becomes something which, a blockbuster. Well, I, I, won't, uh, I won't name him, Ken Katkin. Uh, I was working as a publicist at Atlantic. I remember having this conversation with yeah. him. He said, you know, once a generation, once every eight, ten years, there is an album that sells beyond all expectations it, but to people who never buy albums. Grandmothers, people in That's nursing right. homes, everybody buys exactly. this. Right? We, you know, we, we would see it. I think the last real example is Adele. Right. And then we're, we're into the 100 percent streaming. Um, but, you know, there were these unexpected victories throughout music industry history. Many people take credit. You do so only self-effacingly in the book. You didn't Thank predict you. this. You know, you tried to help the, the, the Hootie Boys, uh, uh, you know, ho- hold on, <laughs> you know, get to album number two. Um, but the fascinating stuff in the book begins. The, the Rise story is great, but the midsection where Atlantic just wants to continue milking the cow yeah. until the cow falls over dead. You know, they want to put out seventh and eighth singles from Cracked Rear View. They, you know, the boys keep them on the road until they drop dead. That's exactly uh, right. You know, maybe you can take a vacation, go somewhere tropical, but then get back on the road. It's like rather than welcoming this and fostering a career, uh, they want to they wanna milk it until it's dead. Unbelievable. Well, what's interesting, and I said that this is what I discovered while writing the book. The story that I already knew and the story that I told was that in early 1996, late 1995, early 1996, in late 1995, around Christmas time, Hootie and the Blowfish's Cracked Review, their first album, is selling a quarter of a million copies a week. (laughs) Because just as you said, you know, I remember I asked my friend Tom, who's one of my mentors at Atlantic, I asked Tom... Why the hell is this happening? And he said, Tim, your aunt goes in the store. She doesn't know what to get you. She gets you the Hootie and the Blowfish record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And each kid this Christmas, Tim, is getting three Hootie and the Blowfish records. Right, 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 right. Um, (laughs) So it's Christmas 1995 and early 1996. And Val is old. Danny Goldberg is no longer at Atlantic. And it's important to stress that probably in the history of the music industry, there are very few artist friendly there are very few music executives who are as artist friendly as danny goldberg no, um, it's true and they were all under the wea umbrella yeah you know electra and and uh, warners you know famously that those guys loved me they all had ears yeah. as the biz atlantic wanted to the people atlantic wanted to consolidate their own power within the company Mm. And the politics at Atlantic is a very important part of this story, which I go into in some yeah. depth, though I still... Uh, With great honesty. You know, if there was a music industry still to offer people jobs, you'd never get another job, but it's moot because there ain't. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That is exactly right. So it's Christmas. It's early 19... It's late 1995, early 1996. Hootie and the Blowfish have probably 
up to about eight, nine million records, maybe seven or eight, nine million records. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact amount. And who's counting at that point? Who's counting at the point? Other than we do see the figures, we do see the weekly figures, and the weekly figures (laughs) are are, are mind boggling 250,000, 275,000, 325,000. This is between Thanksgiving and Christmas 1995. And the band are saying to me, and their manager is saying to me, um, hey, you know, we're playing songs we've been playing for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. These songs we want to record, we want to make, because that's, you know, all Hootie have in their head is the same thing that R.E.M. did, the same thing. that Album they, number two. Album number two. You know, all their heroes kept on making records and going in the studio yeah. and then getting back in the van and going back on the road. And that's all Hootie. Well, they, you know, there's two things bands do. They play and they make records. Right. That's, that's the Hootie ethos. So Hootie are saying to me, put us back in the studio, put us back in the studio. So I booked studio time in San Francisco in uh, late winter, early spring, 1996. And, okay, so Val Azoli is now president of Atlantic Records, a man I have nothing but nice things to say about, which I would not have said at the time. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. age and wisdom makes me see that <laughs> he was a good guy. He was a good guy. Yeah. So Val Azoli calls me into his office, and Val says, Tim, uh, we, have a, we want to do something here. Um, we have a blockbuster right now, but we think we might have Thriller. We think we might have Born in the USA. Yeah. We think we might have Bad Out of Hell. Yeah. Something bigger than a blockbuster. Tim, we think we can, we've released four singles by this point. Tim, we think we can do singles five, six, seven, and then maybe by Christmas of 1996, <laughs> an eighth single and a ninth single. Every uh, song on the record. Yeah. Right, which is really what Bad Out of Hell did, which Prince yes. did. They put out every sing- song as a single. Um, he says, Tim, we think we can make Cracked, Cracked Review the biggest selling record at time of release in history. Mm-hmm. And to tell you the truth, I now am quite certain Val was right. They could have done it. Mm. So Val says, Tim, I need you to sell this to the band. And I said, well, Val, I know they're going to say no, because yeah. these guys, all these guys think about is getting in and out of vans, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like you said. Um, so I go to San Francisco, and, uh, or north of San Francisco, and I try to sell them on this idea. And uh, completely to, as I expected, they say, no, we're not going to do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, now, let me say two things. Number one, as evolves in the story, from that moment on, Atlantic is essentially an enemy of Hootie and the Blowfish. Atlantic says, we needed you to do that. You're not going to do that. Gee, we'll move on to Matchbox 20. And that's almost literally what happened. Literally what happened. And I mean literally, not figuratively. I don't know how you you fire your top earner. You know, thank you for your service. Screw you. But, 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 uh, yeah, all right, all right. But getting back to what I was saying and alluding again to the fact that when you write a book, you learn something. That you mm-hmm. did not expect. Yeah. And what I learned writing this book is that with the exception of one very loud member, the bulk of Hootie and the Blowfish agreed with Val mm. and, and to a lesser degree myself. Um, the band would have been totally happy, or three quarters of the band would have been mm-hmm. totally happy to go 
spend a year in the south of France and let Atlantic can keep on working craft review. Yeah. Um, yeah. One very vocal member who I won't name other than it's named in the book, so I guess I could name. Uh, it's in the book. Yeah. Yes. Mark Bryan, the guitar player, who is yeah. a wonderful guy. Mark, because all of because Mark was so embedded in alternative Indian, indie culture, because Mark had grown up on R.E.M. and mm-hmm. Cowboy Mouth, and God knows, I, I could name him on on. Mark was like, no, we're going in the studio and we're making a record. I only found out 25 years later that Darius would have been happy to let it to sit back and let Atlanta keep on working mm-hmm. that record. Dean would have been completely happy to do that. Sony would have been completely happy to do that. But uh, the management and Mark very strongly felt otherwise, and they got their way. Yeah. But the All big right. story, right. as you noted, was when Hootie and the Blowfish said no to that, Atlantic said, okay, we're moving on. Yeah, no longer cooperative. No longer cooperative, guys. thank right. you. All right, so here's where you and I have, have to wrangle a bit. Now, you said earlier that the four gentlemen in Hootie, and Hootie is a band, you know, the, the it's not only uh, stupid but racist when people refer to Darius as Hootie. That's correct. Um, Hootie was a band. Um, you said they were the people we knew from Maxwell's. In the book, again and again, you know, they're excited about playing golf. I ain't got no <laughs> friends, Tim, who play golf. All right? I just don't. And right? I've, never excited been a, about... I've never been on a golf course in my life, and I'm the only no, person. No, no, You know, they are excited about... They, they, their, their, their drink of choice is Jägermeister shots. That is true, yes. They, uh, you know, play Madden video games, right, with an obsessive devotion. Um you know, I don't think they would have gone to the south of France. I think they would have gone to a Sandals resort, you know, and been happy. These were frat boys, Tim. And it was in the names of their records. Cracked Rear View. <laughs> Coochie Pop. <laughs> Fairweather Johnson. <laughs> you know, they were, they were not. I, you know, I remember vividly the anecdote from the Ann Powers Rolling Stone cover story where they're in the bus, they're touring, the success is blowing up, you know, and they're like ogling girls on the, you know, passing the bus. Like that scene in Almost Famous, you yeah. know, where the bus passes the job. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that they're bad people, but I, I'm also not saying that they were not the, the you know, the members of uh, Sonic Youth and uh, R.E.M. I'm not going to disagree with that. What I will say is this. I wonder if, you know, you grew up in the South. You go to the University of South Carolina. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, not no members of the band were in any frats. They played frats. Yeah. Um, I want to say this, and I want to say this without being in any way, uh, what would the word be? negative or judgmental about some people who are friends of ours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Imagine if R.E.M. were Mike Mills and Pete Buck doubled. That would be a different band. Yes, you're right. And <laughs> I was going to say, not R.E.M. except for rave, maybe Mike they Mills. They would still yeah. bore you to death talking about <laughs> Sid Barrett and the Soft Boys. Yeah, yeah. But they also... would also ogle girls. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know? Um, they would yeah. also ogle girls and uh, yeah. talk about yeah. and play golf, uh, and yeah. that's Hootie and the Blowfish. You are you are correct, right? And that's not, you know, uh, uh, this gets us to uh, Hootie Gate. Uh, so uh, you know, I get a whole <laughs> chapter. I get four pages. I yes, think. you do. 
Um, and, um, you know, I had the unenviable task, because as you point out, no one else wanted to do it, of reviewing uh, Fairweather Johnson. They had been on the cover, Ann Powers, cover story of Rolling Stone, right? And, um, you know, I, I didn't love the album. Right. <laughs> you you write. Uh, I wrote a fairly deep, witty, negative leaning, but not too negative. No. review. Right. Um, you didn't quote my favorite line. You quoted a couple. I, I got to tell you that Eddie Vedder imitating Otis Redding line that came from our pal Rob, great Rolling Stone record reviewer, who had said, you know, he had been quoting uh, the famous uh, Sam Phillips line. If I could find me a white boy who sings like a black man, I'd make a million dollars. Sun Records, right? So I was quoting, I, I was paraphrasing and stealing uh, from Rob O'Connor. Uh, you know, if I could find me uh, a black man who sings like Eddie Vedder, right. I would be, <laughs> which is Darry, which is, you know, Eddie Vedder's great. And so was Otis Redding. Eddie Vedder imitating Otis Redding. All right. So uh, I, my favorite line, though, in that review you didn't quote was uh, this is the equivalent of oatmeal cookies and milk. Uh, you know, this yeah. was not, it's not offensive. It is just uh, bland, especially that second album, right? Um, and and I never said to anyone I was fired for writing a negative review. I was fired right. for shooting my big mouth off. One of the, the good things, one of the great things about writing a book is you get to clear up myths. Myths, yes. And yes. I was delighted to clear up that myth. <laughs> yeah, right. It was not censorship. It was me having a big mouth. I think you you introduce a new myth though. I do. That I was I was well liked uh, and hip. Uh, that neither of those was ever true, Tim. You know me. I was always a fat schlub who just worshipped the feelies and uh, and well like nobody in New York like. Well, I, well, that's true, but everybody hated me. Peter Prescott was on the sidelines in Boston. Uh, the Salem '66 women, um, you know, uh, you, oh man, everybody in New York, uh, all those bands hated us because the cover band was opening for Wire. <laughs> So all I did was alienate my heroes, except for Wire, who loved us. But, you know, what did that count? When I went to Maxwell's, no, but everybody's shooting me daggers, brother. You know, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, so I came to Hootie with no malice. The, the review gets spiked. Uh, the story gets out there. And it was really, you said it, it spread everywhere. It wasn't. The City Pages wrote about it and the New York Observer. But that was like it. And I was deathly afraid for my life. My wife at the time was eight and a half months pregnant. I'm unemployed. How am I going to feed this baby? Am I ever going to publish a record review again? Uh, so I wasn't bragging about this. Uh, it turns out to have been like the number one Google hit for many years until this Robert Sylvester Kelly thing. Uh, neither of which I would like to be associated. I would like to be known as Tim Somer says, uh, this guy plays like the guy in Noi. Well... I, I appreciate that, but I was but we very, don't choose our epitaphs, brother. And I was very, but I was very happy to be able to clear up the fact that you weren't fired because you wrote a bad review about Hootie and the Blowfish. And by the way, as I make clear in the book, I think your review would have sold many more copies of the record than the than review they ultimately ran. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were fired because you had the temerity to talk to the Observer right. about the process. I would say stupidity. Okay. Well, you know, yeah, it was we a Friday do. night about 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah. They asked me three times, what went on? We have the whole story. I say two times. I can't talk to you. The third time I say, for the benefit of our listeners who don't know, I say, that son of a bitch, John Winter, loves anything that sells 8.5 million records. You know, they had asked me, does he love Hootie? As if anyone going to the store to buy a Hootie and the Blowfish record gives a good goddamn 
No, what, of course not. What Rolling Stone or anyone else says about it anyway. Does any review ever matter, Tim? I mean, maybe a fanzine review of Stereolab early on is going to sell 100 copies? That's a good question. That's a very good question. You and I have spent our lives writing reviews. You still are a very great writer, uh, writing from the heart, passionately about the things that you love. Um, I don't think we make... I, I think we illuminate with context. Context, and, thank and, you. you know, That's what maybe I was going to say. Send, Maybe, you know, in your, your, your fervid defense of later Hawkwind records that nobody cared about, right, or after Space Ritual or whatever, maybe, maybe it sends a hardcore person there, but I don't know if we do anything else. No, I agree, but speaking of which, can I ask you a slightly off-subject question, but maybe sure. it's not that off-subject? Had you, did you, one of the things, Jim, as you remember, in the 1980s at Maxwell's, we always talked about the wonderful and corrupt and fascinating legacy of North Jersey and Hudson County politics. Yeah, mobsters, yes. And crooked politicians, which were, you know, the same. In your head or in your heart, did you ever make a connection between your fascination with that stuff and your later relationship with your work on R. Kelly? Well, I, th I think it was... Um you know, fight the power, as Chuck D. said, right? The power in North Jersey was corrupt politicians and the mob. The power in the record industry could often be, uh, and I, I, I should say the music industry, right? I mean, there is no more destructive force today in popular music than Live Nation Ticketmaster, and I have been telling that story for 20 years. I feel like the R. Kelly story, you know? I, I was on it for nearly three decades, and it only, uh, people only pay attention till the end, right? Uh, Live Nation is the same way, uh, Ticketmaster. Uh, the, the process of gentrification that has driven out the clubs that we loved, right. that nurtured so many, right? You know, what happened, you know, John Varvatos Boutique, where you and I spent countless hours at CBG, right? Right. Um, I mean, to me, it was always uh, this music that we love, no matter how obscure, exists in the real world. Therefore, we have to deal with those real world stories. And too many of our peers, Tim, um, just never did. They just reviewed records. They never wrote about uh, the forces assailing this thing that we love. Right. Which is a good time to integrate. I'm actually going to interject something I did not talk about in the book, but is very relevant to what you're saying. In 1995, um, was that the year, the year that Pearl Jam took on Ticketmaster? Mm -hmm. Was that yeah. 1995? Yeah, 95 or 94. Yeah, yeah, right in there. Yeah. When Pearl Jam took on Ticketmaster, God bless him. Um, it, and again, lost. <laughs> it was the same time that Hootie and the Blowfish were beginning to play larger venues. Yeah. And I remember, and I should have put this in the book, and I didn't, just because I'm only remembering it now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is fascinating. Hootie and the Blowfish watched all that very closely, and they yeah. also hated Ticketmaster. Yeah. Hootie made a very conscious decision, which they said out loud to me and to whoever mm -hmm. else would listen. They said... We're not taking on Ticketmaster. We can't afford that political liability. But mm -hmm. what we are going to do is the Ticketmaster cut we will take out of our end. Mm -hmm. So we're not... To keep the ticket prices lower for the fans. We are going to make our ticket prices lower. Everyone yeah. else is going to have ticket prices of $35. Our mm -hmm. ticket price, our top ticket price is going to be $25. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. we are going to take the Ticketmaster cut 
out of our end. And that was a very, very hooting the blowfish thing to do. Um, yeah. If you yeah, ask, Matthews, Matthews did something similar. Yeah. the Matthews band. You know, yeah. um, there were people with principle, and I don't know if Rusty Harmon going to Capitol Hill the way that uh, Burtis Downs from REM did, the way that uh, uh, Aerosmith did. I don't know if it would have made any difference. Uh, uh, but they, they they remembered who was most important, and that yeah, was the and, I, and I, it's interesting. Hootie's, and this is both a subtle and unsubtle part of the book in different places, Hootie's sense of what was politically right and wrong. Mm -hmm. um, in 1996, when they became the biggest band ever to come out of South Carolina, mm -hmm. every politician... You talked to Nikki Haley. I, I love did, that. and I'm going to explain why. <laughs> I'm going to explain why. In 1996, Hootie and the Blowfish become the biggest band ever to come out of South Carolina, and that's a lot to say. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to put down James Brown. Um, yeah. But every politician in the Carolina, in South Carolina, wants their picture with Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Hootie and the Blowfish say, we will never be part of an officially sanctioned state event until you mm. take the rebel flag down outside mm. yeah. of our state house. Yeah. They refuse patently to mm -hmm. ever have their picture taken with a governor of South Carolina until right. that flag is down. Nikki Haley, whatever you want to say about Nikki Haley, is the governor who takes the flag down. Right. And therefore, right. the first governor of South Carolina that Hootie and the Blowfish allow themselves to be have a picture taken with yeah. is Nikki Haley. Now, that's why I interviewed Nikki Haley. Um because I wanted to talk to her about that, and I wanted yeah. to talk to her about the charity work that she'd done uh, with Darius Rucker as a solo artist. Um, as it happens, Nikki Haley also became a part of the book because, Jim, you've talked to, I'm sure, many more politicians than I have. I've talked to very few. Yeah. Um, this is something that's not in the book. I got Nikki Haley on the phone to get a few comments about the flag thing and about yeah. her relationship with the charity work that Darius Rucker gone, had done. I finished, I asked my 10 minutes worth of questions and she just wants yeah. to stay on the phone. She yeah, wants, yeah, yeah, she wants to talk about Tom Waits. She wants yeah. to talk about Hooting the Blowfish. And so what I was able to get Nikki Haley to talk about was South Carolina's very bizarre liquor laws. Oh yeah, 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 the mini bottles. Yeah, because when you went down to South Carolina, the first, it's one of the first thing I noticed going down there in 1993, 94, 95, you walk into a bar and the wall would be full of literally a thousand airplane bottles. Because yeah. Freeport, in, 19, in the 1990s, South Carolina was one of the two states in the Union, the other being Utah at the time, where Freeport drinks was illegal. So I got Nikki mm -hmm. Haley to comment on that. Um, so I have this really free-form, wonderful, friendly talk with Nikki Haley, and I want to sort of direct her back to the politics of Hootie and the Blowfish. Mm -hmm. And I say something akin to this. I say something like this. And this is not in the book. I ask a question that's phrased something like this. Isn't it interesting, Ambassador Haley, because that's mm -hmm. how you refer to her. Isn't it interesting, Ambassador Haley, that at this point, two of the most famous people to come from the state of South Carolina, Darius Rucker and yourself, mm. are from non-Caucasian backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. And she changes the subject fast. 
she doesn't uh, want she doesn't want to talk about that. Right. You know. Right. No. You know? It's one of those things where if it makes you like her more, fine. And if it makes you like her less, she ain't going to amplify it. Yeah. Whereas Darius has never been. Well, that brings us to race. And, and um, you know, you make the case that Darius as a black man, um, a black artist, a black superstar, hootie in the words of many people, uh, ignorant people, um, you know, has never escaped that. And he's still living it today, even among his brothers in the band. Yeah. He says at the end of the book, I don't know if they'll ever understand uh, the uh, everything you know, that happened to me uh, or that I go through as a black man. And and you make the case. Now, I, you know, Tim, never heard it. Maybe you're a greater critic than I. But um, you make the case that he was often singing about race, even in, you know, something like Hold Your Hand. I, I don't think I realized it at the time. I went back and I investigated so many of their early lyrics and realized that Darius was singing about race, uh, some songs overtly, some songs a little more subtly, but it was there. It was all mm-hmm. there. And one of the things, one of the interesting things about writing this book in 2020, in 2019, as opposed to 1999 or 1996, mm-hmm. was this. Um, Hootie and the Blowfish came of age in the Clinton era. Yeah. When... So very many of us, what I think the public idea was to pretend there was no color problem, to pretend that color, I don't, oh, I don't see color. Mm-hmm. 20, writing the book 25 years later, writing it in the age of George Floyd, in the age of Black Lives Matter, we see something very different. I was always very conscious of the fact, but did not know what to make of it or what to say about it, that you would see Darius Rucker sing to a sold-out arena, a sold-out stadium in 1996, and yeah. he would be the only African-American in the room. Right, right, which is hard. Yeah, that's that I did bizarre. not, I would never know or claim to know how that felt, but it was worth addressing. Yeah. It was worth yeah, getting Darius sure. to address it. And Darius tells the story, and I think it's in the book. He tells the story. It's 2019, 2020. Darius Rucker is a country music superstar. Yeah. I'm breaking ground in another realm. Yeah. Even more hostile to he African-Americans. He is the biggest selling country, African-American country artist of all time. And he tells a story of, it's because it's in the middle of the pandemic, and he's masked. Mm-hmm. That because it's the pandemic, he's masked. And he goes to the Apple store, and nobody will pay attention to him. He can't mm-hmm. get anyone to wait on him. And he sees mm-hmm. them going to white people before who him. came in after he did, yeah. yeah. Who came in after he did. Yeah. And he's like, Darius is like, it never stops. Mm-hmm. And I think... Mm-hmm. Something, as I make the case in the book, and I've made this case in a lot of my writing as well, because rock and roll was born as being the sound of America's disenfranchised peoples made electric, it is always about race, even when Mm -hmm. it's not, even when it appears Mm -hmm. that it's not. Mm -hmm. You know, it is always about politics, even when it appears that it is not. And 
I try to make that connection with Hootie and the Blowfish as ridiculous as it sounds. Um, mm-hmm. There's something to be said to the fact that it is not until that in the entire span of the Grand Ole Opry, 1926 to 2022, there are three African-Americans yeah. who were inducted yeah. into the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Darius lives with that weight. Uh, yeah. There are people, including it's easy for people like myself to point a finger and say, oh, Darius should do more. But as is pointed out in the book by African-Americans and scholars and people who are much closer to the subject than I am, Darius Rucker makes a statement just by being there just by representing, yeah. just by standing on the stage. Um, or the golf course. Or the golf course, that's right. <laughs> and it's interesting, something that the band speak about in the book and that Darius speaks about in the book. Bizarrely to a lot of us, to a lot of us sort of Northeasterners, Hootie and the Blowfish put a lot of their money back into golf. Mm-hmm. Into one of their big initiatives is inner city golf programs. Mm-hmm. Which sounds a little bit like the setup for for a punchline, <laughs> except for this. Darius says to us, "You know what? What do you do on a golf course? It's the only time you can stand talking to someone. It's where you do business. It's where you make connections. It's where you mm-hmm. line up your next job. And we want to give inner city kids that skill. So God yeah. bless them." Yeah. All right, you know. All right, so you know, Fairweather Johnson doesn't repeat the magic of uh, Cracked Rearview. Hootie goes on now to uh, reform every once in a while. That's correct. But you end the book by saying uh, the Hootie story is unfinished. The story must remain unfinished. They have done successful tours. They're still a big draw. Um, do you think there's another record? Yeah, there'll be another Hootie record. It's bound to be. Yeah. Um, is it is it Fairweather Johnson or is it uh, Cracked Rearview? What's one of the interesting things, and for political reasons, that I'm sure you again you would understand as a writer. Sometimes you have to keep your friends close for political reasons. I only say this in between the lines in the book. Since the book's come out in interviews and podcasts, I've been a little more frank about this. Hootie the Bluff is his last record. In Perfect Circle, the one they did in uh, 2019, isn't a very good record. Yeah, it was, they don't think so either. They don't think so either. It was a compromise. Um, they were trying to please the country market. They were making a record by numbers, something they've never done before. Um, you put those four guys in the room with maybe Peter Holzapple helping out, and you put mm. those four guys in a room with a couple of guitars and mandolins, they're going to make a great record. Mm-hmm. They're going to make a great record that reflects their Americana, their love for Americana, their love for bluegrass, their love for country music, their love for alternative music, their love for frat rock. You put those four guys in a room and don't bother them too much. They're going to make a great record. <laughs> I think one day they'll do that again. And one of the okay. things, and I'll just say this very briefly, that I, that I point out in the in the book is that because they're college friends, they'll always be college friends. And mm-hmm. they'll always get back together. And they did, They never broke up. 
it went on a hiatus yeah. because two of the band members, Dean and Sony, said, hey, I need to live a life. I need to spend some time with my family. That's mm-hmm. why they started, you know, in 2006, they were down to playing in front of 600, 800 people. Yeah. And they didn't notice because, like they said, their whole life had been just getting in and out of vans. They thought that's where it was supposed mm-hmm. to happen. And finally, in 2007, 2008, Sony and Dean go, we need to, we need to spend some time with our families and live a life and need a break. before our kids go off to college. Um, and it was at that time that Darius said, okay, well, I want to keep on working, so I'm going to do a country record. They mm-hmm. didn't, whereas I think the popular myth is Hootie and the Blowfish broke up because Darius Rucker wanted to have a country career. Darius Rucker's country career, from Darius's point of view, is almost accidental. It's yeah, not accidental from the music well, industry's point of view. There are very yeah. important people at uh, CAA and Capital Nashville who wanted to make him a star. But Darius didn't mm-hmm. want that. Darius just wanted to make a little country record. But having said that, yeah, I think they'll make another record, and I think it'll probably be a good one. Will it be the kind right. of record that will be on the top of your turntable and my turntable? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, well, and uh, what it does commercially is... Uh, uh, I mean, it's impossible to do what anything did commercially That's in correct. that era. It is a new era. Yeah. A brave new world, Tim Somer. Maybe even you and me could uh, form the Noi Tribute Band and I'm all get for some it. notoriety there. <laughs> I treasure my Hugo Largo vinyl, I'll tell you well, that. Well, thank you. One day maybe there'll be, there will never be another Hugo Largo record. But I'm, I'm yeah. hoping one day that those records see the re-releases that they deserve. That would be nice. It's a pleasure talking. Always. Thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. All right. That's it for this bonus episode. To support Sound Opinions, become a member on Patreon and connect with our listeners in our Facebook group. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. Thanks for listening.